Chapter 35 of The Revolt of the Angels. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Revolt of the Angels by Anatole France. Translated by Mrs. Wilfred Jackson. Chapter 35. And last, wherein the sublime dream of Satan is unfolded. Climbing the seven steep terraces which rise up from the bed of the Ganges to the temples muffled in creepers, the five angels reached, by half-obliterated paths, the wild garden filled with perfumed clusters of grapes and chattering monkeys, and at the far end thereof they discovered him whom they had come to seek. The archangel lay with his elbow on black cushions embroidered with golden flames. At his feet crouched lions and gazelles. Twined in the trees, tame serpents turned on him their friendly gaze. At the sight of his angelic visitors, his face grew melancholy. Long since, in the days when, with his brow crowned with grapes and his scepter of vine leaves in his hand, he had taught and comforted mankind, his heart had many times been heavy with sorrow. But never yet, since his glorious downfall, had his beautiful face expressed such pain and anguish. Zita told him of the black standards assembled in crowds in all the waste places of the globe, of the deliverance premeditated and prepared in the provinces of heaven, where the first revolt had long ago been fomented. "'Prince,' she went on, "'your army awaits you. Come, lead it on to victory.' "'Friends,' replied the great archangel, I was aware of the object of your visit. Baskets of fruit and honeycombs await you under the shade of this mighty tree. The sun is about to descend into the roseate waters of the sacred river. When you have eaten, you will slumber pleasantly in this garden, where the joys of the intellect and of the senses have reigned since the day when I drove hence the spirit of the old demiurge. Tomorrow I will give you my answer." Night hung its blue over the garden. Satan fell asleep. He had a dream, and in that dream, soaring over the earth, he saw it covered with angels in revolt, beautiful as gods, whose eyes darted lightning. And from pole to pole one single cry, formed of a myriad cries, mounted towards him, filled with hope and love. And Satan said, Let us go forth. Let us seek the ancient adversary in his high abode. And he led the countless host of angels over the celestial plains. And Satan was cognizant of what took place in the heavenly citadel. When news of this second revolt came thither, the father said to the son, The irreconcilable foe is rising once again. Let us take heed to ourselves, and in this, our time of danger, look to our defenses, lest we lose our high abode. And the son, consubstantial with the father, replied, We shall triumph under the sign that gave Constantine the victory. Indignation burst forth on the mountain of God. At first the faithful seraphim condemned the rebels to terrible torture, but afterwards decided on doing battle with them. The anger burning in the hearts of all inflamed each countenance. They did not doubt of victory, but treachery was feared, 
and eternal darkness had been at once decreed for spies and alarmists. There was shouting and singing of ancient hymns and praise of the Almighty. They drank of the mystic wine. Courage, overinflated, came near to giving way, and a secret anxiety stole into the inner depths of their souls. The archangel Michael took supreme command. He reassured their minds by his serenity. His countenance, wherein his soul was visible, expressed contempt for danger. By his orders, the chiefs of the thunderbolts, the cherubs, grown dull with a long interval of peace, paced with heavy steps the ramparts of the holy mountain, and, letting the gaze of their bovine eyes wander over the glittering clouds of their lord, strove to place the divine batteries in position. After inspecting the defenses, they swore to the Most High that all was in readiness. They took counsel together as to the plan they should follow. Michael was for the offensive. He, as a consummate soldier, said it was the supreme law. Attack or be attacked. There was no middle course. Moreover, he added, the offensive attitude is particularly suitable to the ardor of the thrones and dominations. Beyond that, it was impossible to obtain a word from the valiant chief, and this silence seemed the mark of a genius sure of himself. As soon as the approach of the enemy was announced, Michael sent forth three armies to meet them, commanded by the archangels Uriel, Raphael, and Gabriel. Standards, displaying all the colors of the Orient, were unfurled above the ethereal plains, and the thunders rolled over the starry floors. For three days and three nights was the lot of the terrible and adorable armies unknown on the mountain of God. Towards dawn on the fourth day news came, but it was vague and confused. There were rumors of indecisive victories, of the triumph now of this side, now of that there came reports of glorious deeds which were dissipated in a few hours. The thunderbolts of Raphael, hurled against the rebels, had, it was said, consumed entire squadrons. The troops commanded by the impure Zeta were thought to have been swallowed up in the whirlwind of a tempest of fire. It was believed that the savage Istar had been flung headlong into the gulf of perdition so suddenly that the blasphemies begun in his mouth had been forced backwards with explosive results. It was popularly supposed that Satan, laden with chains of adamant, had been plunged once again into the abyss. Meanwhile, the commanders of the three armies had sent no messages. Mutterings and murmurs, mingled with the rumors of glory, gave rise to fears of an indecisive battle a precipitate retreat. Insolent voices gave out that a spirit of the lowest category, a guardian angel, the insignificant Arcadi, had checked and routed the dazzling host of the three great archangels. There were also rumors of a wholesale defection in the seventh heaven, where rebellion had broken out before the beginning of time, and some had even seen black clouds of impious angels joining the armies of the rebels on earth. But no one lent an ear to the odious rumors, 
and stress was laid on the news of victory, which ran from lip to lip, each statement readily finding confirmation. The high places resounded with hymns of joy. The seraphim celebrated on harp and psaltery Saboth, god of thunder. The voices of the elect united with those of the angels in glorifying the invisible, and at the thought of the bloodshed that the ministers of holy wrath had caused among the rebels, sighs of relief and jubilation were wafted from the heavenly Jerusalem towards the Most High. But the beatitude of the Most Blessed, having swelled to the utmost limit before due time, could increase no more, and the very excess of their felicity completely dulled their senses. The songs had not yet ceased when the guards watching on the ramparts signaled the approach of the first fugitives of the divine army. Seraphim on tattered wing, flying in disorder, maimed cherubs going on three feet. With impassive gaze, Michael, prince of warriors, measured the extent of the disaster, and his keen intelligence penetrated its causes. The armies of the living God had taken the offensive, but by one of those fatalities in war which disconcert the plans of the greatest captains, the enemy had also taken the offensive, and the effect was evident. Scarcely were the gates of the citadel opened to receive the glorious but shattered remnants of the three armies, when a rain of fire fell on the mountain of God. Satan's army was not yet in sight, but the walls of topaz, the cupolas of emerald, the roofs of diamond, all fell in with an appalling crash under the discharge of the electrophores. The ancient thunderclouds essayed to reply, but the bolts fell short, and their thunders were lost in the deserted plains of the skies. Smitten by an invisible foe, the faithful angels abandoned the ramparts. Michael went to announce to his God that the holy mountain would fall into the hands of the demon in twenty-four hours, and that nothing remained for the master of the heavens but to seek safety in flight. The seraphim placed the jewels of the celestial crown in coffers. Michael offered his arm to the queen of heaven, and the holy family escaped from the palace by a subterranean passage of porphyry. A deluge of fire was falling on the citadel. Regaining his post once more, the glorious archangel declared that he would never capitulate, and straightway advanced the standards of the living God. That same evening the rebel host made its entry into the thrice-sacred city. On a fiery steed, Satan led his demons. Behind him marched Arkady, Istar, and Zeta. As in the ancient revels of Dionysus, old Nectar bestrode his ass. Thereafter, floating out far behind, followed the black standards. The garrison laid down their arms before Satan. Michael placed his flaming sword at the feet of the conquering archangel. "'Take back your sword, Michael,' said Satan. "'It is Lucifer who yields it to you.' bear it in defense of peace and law then letting his gaze fall on the leaders of the celestial cohorts he cried in a ringing voice archangel michael and you 
powers, thrones, and dominations, swear all of you to be faithful to your God. We swear it, they replied with one voice. And Satan said, Powers, thrones, and dominations of all past wars, I wish but to remember the invincible courage that you displayed and the loyalty which you rendered to authority, for these assure me of the steadfastness of the fealty you have just sworn to me. The following day, on the ethereal plain, Satan commanded the black standards to be distributed to the troops, and the winged soldiers covered them with kisses and bedewed them with tears. And Satan had himself crowned God. Thronging round the glittering walls of heavenly Jerusalem, apostles, pontiffs, virgins, martyrs, confessors, the whole company of the elect, who during the fierce battle had enjoyed delightful tranquility, tasted infinite joy in the spectacle of the coronation. The elect saw with ravishment the Most High precipitated into hell, and Satan seated on the throne of the Lord. In conformity with the will of God, which had cut them off from sorrow, they sang in the ancient fashion the praises of their new master. And Satan, piercing space with his keen glance, contemplated the little globe of earth and water where of old he had planted the vine and formed the first tragic chorus. And he fixed his gaze on that Rome where the fallen god had founded his empire on fraud and lie. Nevertheless, at that moment a saint ruled over the church. Satan saw him praying and weeping, and he said to him, To thee I entrust my spouse. Watch over her faithfully. In thee I confirm the right and power to decide matters of doctrine, to regulate the use of the sacraments, to make laws and to uphold purity of morals. And the faithful shall be under obligation to conform thereto, my church is eternal, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Thou art infallible. Nothing is changed. And the successor of the apostles felt flooded with rapture. He prostrated himself, and with his forehead touching the floor, replied, O Lord my God, I recognize thy voice. Thy breath has been wafted like balm to my heart. Blessed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Satan found pleasure in praise and in the exercise of his grace. He loved to hear his wisdom and his power belauded. He listened with joy to the canticles of the cherubim, who celebrated his good deeds, and he took no pleasure in listening to Nectaire's flute, because it celebrated nature's self, yielded to the insect and to the blade of grass their share of power and love, and counseled happiness and freedom. Satan, whose flesh had crept, in days gone by, at the idea that suffering prevailed in the world, now felt himself inaccessible to pity. He regarded suffering and death as the happy results of omnipotence and sovereign kindness, and the savor of the blood of victims rose upward toward him like sweet incense. 
he fell to condemning intelligence and to hating curiosity. He himself refused to learn anything more, for fear that in acquiring fresh knowledge he might let it be seen that he had not known everything at the very outset. He took pleasure in mystery, and believing that he would seem less great by being understood, he affected to be unintelligible. Dense fumes of theology filled his brain. One day, following the example of his predecessor, he conceived the notion of proclaiming himself one God in three persons. Seeing Arcadi smile as this proclamation was made, he drove him from his presence. Istar and Zita had long since returned to earth. Thus centuries passed like seconds. Now, one day, from the altitude of his throne, he plunged his gaze into the depths of the pit and saw Ialdabaoth in the Gehenna, where he himself had long laid and chained. Amid the everlasting gloom, Ialdabaoth still retained his lofty mien. Blackened and shattered, terrible and sublime, he glanced upwards at the palace of the King of Heaven with a look of proud disdain, then turned away his head. And the new god, as he looked upon his foe, beheld the light of intelligence and love pass across his sorrow-stricken countenance. And lo, Yaldabaoth is now contemplating the earth, and, seeing it sunk in wickedness and suffering, he began to foster thoughts of kindliness in his heart. On a sudden he rose up, and beating the ether with his mighty arms, as though with oars, he hastened thither to instruct and to console mankind. Already his vast shadow shed upon the unhappy planet a shade soft as a night of love. And Satan awoke bathed in an icy sweat. Nectar, Istar, Arcadi, and Zeta were standing round him. The finches were singing. "'Comrades,' said the great archangel, no, we will not conquer the heavens. Enough to have the power. War engenders war, and victory defeat. God, conquered, will become Satan. Satan, conquering, will become God. May the fate spare me this terrible lot. I love the hell which formed my genius. I love the earth where I have done some good if it be possible to do any good in this fearful world where beings live but by rapine. Now, thanks to us, the god of old is dispossessed of his terrestrial empire, and every thinking being on this globe disdains him or knows him not. But what matter that men should be no longer submissive to Yaldabaoth, if the spirit of Yaldabaoth is still in them? If they, like him, are jealous, violent, quarrelsome, and greedy, and the foes of the arts and of beauty. What matter that they have rejected the ferocious demiurge if they do not hearken to the friendly demons who teach all truths, to Dionysus, Apollo, and the Muses? As to ourselves, celestial spirits, sublime demons, we have destroyed Yaldabaoth, our tyrant, if in ourselves we have destroyed ignorance and fear. And Satan, 
turning to the gardener, said, Nectaire, you fought with me before the birth of the world. We were conquered because we failed to understand that victory is a spirit, and that it is in ourselves and in ourselves alone that we must attack and destroy Yaldabaoth. The End End of Chapter 35 End of The Revolt of the Angels by Anatole France Translated by Mrs. Wilfred Jackson This recording has been by Roger Moline